and I take this step and I look down and there it is okay. coiled up on my <laughs> mid-step. This is, one of, this is one of these days you're by yourself. I'm with my dog, I'm, I'm, my dog's ahead of me okay. and, uh, and then I see the snake right, I'm just right stepping across it oh my god and I kept on going. Brisbane, Australia. Okay. Did you grow or up? Or as Americans would call it, Brisbane. Brisbane? Yes, right. <laughs> we used to have McHale's Navy as a television show when I was growing up, and so you're sitting I in like Brisbane, it. and they'd say, we're going on leave, we're going to Brisbane. Brisbane. You just laugh, you know. And they got no idea, but anyway, there you go. Do you have siblings? Uh, no. no you're the only child? Only child. Yeah, my, my, my parents tried to have more, but uh, unfortunately my mother had a number of miscarriages, and then they gave up, but uh, they tried, they tried. Okay, okay. Are your parents still with us? No, no. My, uh, my father and my father would be 95 today. Okay. Today's his birthday. He'd be 95 oh, wow. today if he was still alive. But he died very young. He died at 51. How old were you when he died? Oh, I was 25. Oh, so, so that was 1970. That, so you, you had him throughout your life. 1978. Uh, okay. 1978. And then he passed away of cancer, lung cancer. Okay. Yeah, my mother, you know, she also died of lung cancer. She was about 83 when she died. So both died of lung cancer. Me too, perhaps, I don't know, through that passive smoking when I was a kid. I don't know. I don't know. But my mother stopped smoking. She stopped smoking like decades before she died. And, okay. uh, but still, in the end, it was lung cancer. So what was it like growing up? Did you stay there? How long well, did you I, live I there was born in Brisbane, then we went out in the bush. Okay. Went out in the bush. So we went out to a place called uh, Isisford, which is where my mother grew up. She was from the bush. Mm-hmm. And like a, you'd call it a one-horse town in America. It was like that very small place. Okay. And uh, my father was running uh, sheep properties. We don't call them ranches. We call them properties, a sheep property. So there was two. There's one called uh, Balcomo and then another one later called Bubra. So he was the manager of the property. So we're out there. And then uh, my first schooling was we called uh, School of the Air. School of the Air. So you'd be at home, you'd have a headphone and a microphone, and the teacher would be somewhere with a whole bunch of kids scattered in these uh, rural areas who've got no school to go to, and you'd study with your mother on School of the Air. I did that first, so School of the Air. And then... For how long? Oh, that was about a year, I think, about a year. And then I went to... The first school I went to was in Isisford. Mm-hmm. It was a one-teacher, one-room school, you know. <laughs> First, first years, row one, year two, row two, year three. I think we only went up about row five or something. You were the only... In that school, I was in, in my group of year ones okay. in the front row. Okay. <laughs> but one teacher, I don't know about how many kids, maybe 20 kids okay, max, so I did that until I was about uh, six, about six, and then went to, my, my parents moved to Brisbane because they knew uh, I'm never gonna get educated this way, so they moved from my education to Brisbane, which is where enjoy, my father you, was from. But did you enjoy the schooling that you had up until that oh, time? Were you? No, I was a kid, you know, I was out in the bush, it was fantastic, so fantastic, you know. No, I'm talking about the schooling. Oh, the schooling, I don't remember anything about the schooling, and it was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember there was one teacher in one school, and you know, we had we were mostly playing games and cutting stuff up and doing, I don't know what the okay, hell we were okay, doing. Okay, okay. Who knows what the hell we were doing. Right. But uh, then we moved back to Brisbane, and. Uh, my mother had not lived in Brisbane, so she came from the bush down to the big smoke, the big city. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to uh, Sherwood State School, which is where my father had gone as a boy. And then we moved to a place called Oxley, a couple of suburbs out. 
uh, very close and went to Oxley State School, which is a very well-established old state school there. I went there and then I went through Oxley uh, High School, which is a combination of, you'd call it middle school in America mm -hmm. and high school. It's in one unit in Australia, they call high schools one unit. And I went right through. That was interesting because that was the first year that school opened as a high school. There was uh, mainly servicing the migrant populations who'd come to Australia. So my class was full of Ukrainians and Poles and... What years you know, are we talking about now? What oh, we're talking, about? let's see. I went to high school in 66, 1966. Okay. And I graduated in uh, 1970, I was 16 when I graduated. But not, that's from our 12, from the 12, 12, years, 12 years? 12 years. 12 years, yeah. So you were in 16 when you graduated? I was 16 years old, yeah, I graduated. In 1970? 1970, yeah. I graduated in 1970. We're very close in age. You're, you're, you're a little bit older than me. I'm one you're year about, older than you because I graduated. Yeah, about one year, yeah. You said you were 16. I was 17 when I graduated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm born in 52. I'm born in 53. You are born in November, I think, is that right? I'm October. October. Well, I'm born in December, so we're very so close. We're very, very close. Very close. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you this. So in the school, I'm just trying to picture this in my mind. When you were on your father's Property, property, yeah. property. property yeah. did, did he have you doing anything? You didn't just play all day. Oh well, when when I was when, when we were living there, I was school of the year, so I'd go and you know the school of the year. It wasn't all day, you know, right. a few hours, and then you know my mother said that uh, we had uh, two uh, two sheep dogs, Peter and Paul, and uh, I'd disappear with the dogs. And my mother, you know, those days you're on the property, right? Mm -hmm. Parents never worried about you. So you, you just take you off. Have, you, just, you didn't have any duties. Now. I had no no siblings to play with, right? So but I, you had no duties. No, in the, around the just run around in the bush, you know, and take the dogs with me. And then my, my parents always thought the dogs with him is okay. <laughs> but did you do any hunting or did you fish? Did you? Get oh, I was. Yeah, we fished. There was a you in the river. You had a river. Okay. You no, know, no, it was freshwater fish. Okay. You know, right. Some fishing, but I wasn't doing much fishing. I was. I was only yeah. Five, six years of age, you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, this is the bush. We're talking, you know, America's a bit different. You're a big I country. Know, but when I flew from L.A. to Denver, mm -hmm. we had a Dale Carnegie owners meeting in Denver, so I'd never been to Denver. So I flew across the Rockies, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, amazing. There are so many cities, so many towns along the way. You know, in Australia, you'd fly that distance, there'd be no towns, there'd no. <laughs> be nothing, you know, right. be zero. Kangaroos maybe, you know. And, but it's like, wow, America is so populated compared to Australia with the same, almost same physical area. You take out Alaska. That's right, that's right. That's right. See, but we don't have the rivers, we don't have the, you know. Oh, the, it's not as lush, right? It's not as lush. America's more, much right, richer. More, we're we're more arid, very more uh, dry continent. Um, you know, we have a very famous poem by Dorothy McKellar. I love a sunburnt country. Yeah, and it's a sunburned country. So it's very brown. It's, it's it brown. It's hot. So Not much. Has it, has it maintained? Has it basically stayed that way? Even oh, yeah. now with the technology yeah. we have and the uh, what they've done is they've it? they've actually created a problem because in the bush, most there's no big rivers for the most part, like the Mississippi Delta. That don't they don't have that much of that. But they've been pumping water out of the what they call the artesian basin. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is as the water level comes up, the salt comes to the surface too, and then you can't grow anything. So it's a complex problem in Australia. Australia is a very uh, water resource poor country. Mm -hmm. You don't think of that, but it actually is. So it's a problem. But anyway, the bush was great for me as a kid, running around like a like a crazy boy, you know, having a fake go. So when you finally got to Brisbane and you went there, how did that change your life? What did you? Well, see my, my my father my father was uh, 
a guy who he'd left school at 13. So it means he got to probably year four or five. Did he have a big family himself? Primary. Yeah, he yeah. had seven, one or seven. And he's what number? In those, in those days, when you go back, they're all like, you look at the family tree, seven, 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 you know, <laughs> seven. You know. And, they, and they needed them to help them with the property. Yeah, well, he was a fifth generation Australian. I'm a sixth generation Australian, so we've been there a long time. But he, um, he uh, at 13, he didn't like school. So in those days, so that's fine. If you don't like school, you've got to go to work. So he was sent out to the bush at 13 years of age by himself to work on a property. You know, somebody else's property. As a labourer, to work on somebody else's property, right? So uh, he could do everything. Motors, you know, anything like that. Fixed things, amazing. He was a slaughter beasts, fences, you know, the whole farming thing. So we were actually on a a five-acre sort of hobby farm, you'd sort of call it, in Brisbane, actually. It was where we were living. And so we were growing crops and we had bloody cattle and we had... Pigs and did you, you know, have to chooks do stuff and then? Did you have oh yeah, I had, I had lots of jobs, feeding so the chooks and taking care of the pigs and you know helping my father. On did did you have anything that you favoured that you felt like I'm I really like doing this? Uh, no, no, but I just enjoyed working with my father, you know, because I felt like you know I'm a bit of a man yeah, here. You know, yeah, my dad, yeah. you know. yeah. and my father's very handy. Not I'm totally useless. My father's very handy, and so uh, frustrated farmer. You know, he should have had a big farm. But, you know, it was still five acres, you know, and then all around where I was living was still undeveloped. It was all bush. So, you know, I had my dog, Sally, you know, and I, and we'd head off after school and head off into the bush and just disappear for hours, you know, come back at dinner time. My mother, father wouldn't even worry about it. And I'd take the dog and a big stick. The dog had a big stick. No, I had the big stick. You had the the dog and a big stick. Okay, you had a dog and a big stick, okay. For the snakes. For the snakes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. but give me give me one day that you kind of remember where you actually went off in the bush. Well, I tell you something. Yeah. Up until up until basically up until high school, mm-hmm. uh, through primary school in the summer months, I never wore shoes. I go barefoot to school. But don't you have thorns and stuff? On no, I used to. My feet were like leather. this table. They were like leather. I can tell you. <laughs> so I used to walk. I used to walk through the bush. To school, you know, it's like as a place I could go, and then come home. I'd do some homework, uh, have a you know, glass of milk or something, you know, a cookie or something. Uh, do my homework, finish my homework, and then I could go out. So you know, take Sally and we'd head out in the bush, and you know, has a, there were ponds and be turtles in the ponds, and there'd be snakes, water snakes, and this type of thing. You know, be careful of them. But you know, you didn't lots have a of birds. You didn't have a purpose, like you said, because I used to when I was young, I had a BB gun. Ah, oh, no, no, we weren't killing anything. We you didn't kill anything? No, no, no. Oh, snakes. But you're trying to avoid them. You're you know? trying to avoid you, them. You, you, didn't look, you didn't go looking for you them. You know, looking for them. Like, you know, no, I'm, I remember I was walking along the path with my dog looking up because I love birds. I, I, I recognise all the birds and I could have this... My parents bought me this big, thick book called What Bird Is That? And I'd, have, I'd see a bird and I'd go home and I'd bird, find that bird or what about the nesting and mm-hmm. did a study on this. I was very interested. And then I'd walk along. And I take this step, and I look down, and oh, there it is, okay. coiled up on my <laughs> mid-step. This is, one of, this is one of these days you're by yourself. I'm with my dog, my, my dog's exactly. ahead of me. Okay. And, uh, and then I see the snake, right, I'm just right stepping across it, you know, oh my God. and I kept on going. Unfortunately, the snake didn't bite me, because I was barefoot, I wasn't wearing anything. So, uh, but that's Australia, you know, snakes everywhere, so you just... Had you, have you ever been bitten? No, 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 no. Well, see, I'm smart enough to, you don't, you know, 
You don't treat snakes lightly. You don't play around with snakes. Right. You know, even if you kill them, they they can still bite you. You know. They, Did you ever have anything happen to you while you were out there, like like no, break a break an arm no, or nothing? No, 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 no. Fine. You were good. Yeah. Well, well, I think my 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 parents wanted me to be independent. So you know, from a very young age, I was very self, re, you know, reliant, resilient. Uh, independent, and that sort of carried through my Did life. Did you learn to ride a bike? Oh yeah, I had a bike, I had a bike. Well, how old were you when you learned to ride your bike? Uh, I think I had the bike when I was going to high school, so it must have been about Okay, so 12. you had ridden one before. No, my, okay. I remember my, my father was helping me to learn, you know, the type of, right. dad's holding the bike, and right, right, right. then he's not holding the bike, yeah, and, and there, down right. you go, you know. But I used to ride my bike to high school, but I used to take the, you know, avoid the main roads and right. go the suburban roads to my high school, which is off this huge hill. That was always very punishing, but... Uh, Coming down was a bit, uh, a bit scary, but so you didn't have any motor vehicles or anything like that. Ah, oh, that was later when I started working okay, on started my working first car. Okay. You know, right. see, I'm trying to compare it to my time too because I started working on motors like lawnmower motors and stuff like that, and I made my own motorcycle no. when I was like no, ten. No, no, okay. my father was a mechanic. All right. Yeah, see, my father was a big gambler. But yeah. where do you, where would he have to gamble? Horses. So the way they had a place close by, or he had to go a distance to get there. Or what? Uh, well, how would you do that? When when he's in the bush, they'd, they'd have a, a bookie and they'd take bets on the okay. horses and you'd have and the radio, get the radio, get the results of the races. And then in the city, you could go to the track on, on the weekends, on Saturday. And so, you know, if you ever want to be poor, grow up poor, have a father who's a, who's a gambler. You know, it was tough. He, just, he loved it. It was tough. It was tough. You know, dad, you know, paid on Friday, down the track on Saturday. Misery all rest of the week. You know? But your mom and dad stayed together the whole time. Oh yeah, yeah, all the way through. My mother married my father, knowing he was a gambler, thinking she was going to change him. And she never could. The only thing that changed him was cancer. When he was about forty-nine, forty-nine, he got uh, cancer, and then two years he was dead. And he, uh, he stopped two smoking. Years, two years. Stopped drinking. He was a big drinker, big drinker, big gambler, big smoker. That was my dad. You know. But he was good to your mother, I guess? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I got a bit older, you know, uh, sort of when I my teens, you know, my father but he hit the grog and then he'd become, you know, verbally abusive to him. Never, never hit my mother. Verbally what about you? Abusive. No, no, never hit me. Okay. Never, no. Um, you know, my father was his own man, you know. He's the sort of a uh, man's man type of guy, you know. I remember when he was in his in his in his forties. He used to belong to a thing called the Markets Club, which was the Rockley had a big market, so you had all the fresh food, okay. fruit, and vegetables would come in there, and all that. It was a proper market. He, for some reason, he was belonged to the Markets Club, and some guy, some guy, uh, in his forties, mind you, he said something about my father's ears. Okay. He was a bit sensitive about his ears because maybe they stuck out a little bit, right? And uh, he was being, you know, giving my father a hard time. He dropped him. You were there? No, I, I oh, wasn't. He dropped him. He dropped him. Just bang, hit him, knocked him out. Yeah. He got banned from the club for bloody months, you know. But, you know, he was, he'd grown up in the bush at 13, on your own, working on a property in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And he was a shearer for many years. He was a shearer. And they'd travel. I don't know if you have this in Rake, but they sort of start in the south and they'd move from town to town 
going up the country with the sh following the sheep stations that shear all the sheep here, then they go to the next one, the next one, the next one. And one one story I remember he was uh, with shearers young. They're all young blokes, right? Their twenties. Very backbreaking, literally backbreaking work as you're bending over shearing the sheep. It's backbreaking work. And uh, they met a crew coming south. They'd finished. They're going south and. Uh, he said to some bloke, any, any good-looking Sheilas in this next town? Good-looking girls, you know? And the guy said, only one, Brenda Hersey. That's my mother. Oh, wow. So he met my mother and then eventually got married and, you know, that was it. So these oh, are very oh, small oh, towns. How old was he when he got married? Uh, uh, no, well, how old were they now? My mother must have been about, um, there's about a, uh, dad's born in 27, mum was born in 32, so five-year difference. So maybe my mum would have been... My father's about 25, I think, mm -hmm. and he got married. So my mum was 19, 20. They had, they had you right away, or she had me? Uh, no, they had me. They had me a couple of years later. Yeah, okay. yeah. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, my father was. Uh, you know, he was really. Uh, his life was his life. You know, he wanted to gamble. He wanted to smoke. He wanted to drink. He did all that. I don't yeah. smoke. I've never smoked. And you decided you decided while you were growing up with your father that that's something I'm not going to do. I'm not going to smoke. Your children? Uh, yes, yes. I have a daughter. She's just recently got married in Australia, and she's uh, the first. She's, she's the first. Uh, she's the eldest, and she's down there. She's 28. And my son, he's uh, 21. He's back. He was in Bristol in England doing uh, second year law, but they've uh, because they're now in sort of uh, SWAT vac SWAT. SWATVAC means um, you, it's a break between classes and examination. We call okay. it SWATVAC in Australia. Okay. SWAT vacation. Okay. Swatting means to really hit that. Books hard. So he's in that sort of stage to say, look, I might as well come home and do it at what home. What kind of law is he thinking about? Oh, I don't know. He's in second year law. I mean, they're doing everything, you know. So he's, uh, he's here. He's back here. He's been here. And he'll do that till uh, end of May. And uh, then he'll go back in, I think he goes back in August uh, this year for year three. So the, he's back. Mum's happy about that, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're too sad either. I yeah, he went. Uh, did your boys go to St Mary's by any chance? No, my son went to St Moore and they went to YS. YS, okay. Well, he yeah. went to St Mary's. He went okay. to St Mary's. Yeah. And, well, he uh, has a good group of guys. They're very close. St Mary's does have a camaraderie that's. Yeah, I picked, a, I picked the school because it was a boys' school. And you, I, why, why? you didn't want him in a school yet? I did the research because it's quite clear that girls are academically better than boys at that age because they can sit and they can concentrate and they have the discipline. Boys are like you know, fireworks. They're all over the place. And so there's often that sort of um, tension of the girls are smarter than the boys, so the boys dumb down as a sort of rebellion. You know? So I so said, well, there's no point putting him in that situation. Why put him in a competitive situation where he's going to feel second class mm -hmm. against the girls? Put him in a situation where it's all boys and they can f run around, they can play sports. He's very sporty. I've always been very sporty too, so you're very sporty. F get all that, that excess energy off, you know, letting go play basketball, love basketball. Me too, when I was school, played basketball all the time, loved it, you know, get that energy going. So I thought very carefully about that. And also, in one of your podcasts, remember you're talking with someone about um, uh, uh, what language, who was it you were talking about, the language you speak at home. Might have been, uh, Reich, Wooten, right? Yes. And I did a big study on bilingualism when he was born. A big study on bilingualism. And, I, and, I, and my daughter too, and I thought, okay, what's the, what's the research say? The research says your child should uh, uh, study in the language 
that's not the native language of the environment you're in. So we're in a Japanese-speaking environment, so he should study English in the educational system, and I should only speak English to him, and his mother should only speak Japanese to him, which is basically what's happened, you know. So although he went to primary school at uh, Seinan Shogaku in Omotesan for about four years, but in that time, uh, because it was Japanese all during the day, then she would speak to him in English at, at night time. Oh, so your we, wife would? My wife would, yeah, okay, she was so. good enough to do that. So right. again, because it helped him to be bilingual mm -hmm. in this whole point. So, yeah, that's See, that's something I thought about too. I, I was fortunate enough to meet a linguist. Both he and his wife were linguists. I remember that about they had five languages. Right? They had five languages. Monday was this language, Tuesday was this language, Wednesday. He told me, he told it was me, amazing. He said the child is not the problem; mm. it's the parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. must be disciplined, so you must stay in the language. So I had even my staff at the time, because my staff were bilingual. Which language are you going to speak to my kids in? Whenever you speak to them, whatever you choose, you stick in that. Stick with that language. Yeah. That's how they're going to know you. It's good, you know, because I have a, a, a guy I know, another Aussie. And I told him that when his child was born, I said, well, if you want your child to be bilingual, but he didn't have the discipline. So mm. now... See, a lot of people, make, they want to be, they get lazy, and they bilingual. make it easy for themselves when the kids have to go somewhere, this and that. My kids would come to me and say, oh, nakasita, and I say, what? I know sure, exactly yeah. what they're saying. He said, I'd too say, bad. <laughs> no, I would say, what, what, what are you saying? They say, well, I, I'm hungry. And then, yeah, I, yeah, then I would respond. You were strict with them. That's good. Yeah, because I figured, I'd worked with so many other kids, Greg, at the time, and I'd been fortunate when I was an investment consultant that my investment, that my manager, the guy that owned the company, said, Lance, you'll never know how good a salesman you are until you have your own kids. Mm. And good I didn't understand at the time. Point. He said, because they'll know who you really are. Mm. And they're the best salespeople in the world. <laughs> Tell me about it. Dad, I, I want. <laughs> that's right. As if you have girls. I didn't have girls. I have four boys. So the sad thing about that, I think, for parents, because what they say is very true in many cases. Men will discipline their sons and spoil their daughters, mm -hmm. and women will discipline their daughters and spoil their sons. Mm. My wife's very disappointed because I'm really a my with my son, <laughs> and she's the disciplinarian. With him? Yeah. She oh, always expected, because I'm really, as I said, you know, self-reliant, independent, you know, very disciplined. She's expecting I'm going to be like that with him. But you are. I wasn't because I think... Uh, the relationship with my father, you know, he was focused on himself. He was focused, when you're a gambler, yeah, but when you're a gambler, you're focused on yourself. When you're a gambler, you're addicted to gambling, you're focused on gambling. Gambling is everything, and family are not everything. So I grew up with that, and I didn't want to have that relationship with my son. I, you know, I love my father, but my father was focused on gambling. It's a big difference. When you're, anyone who's listening to this, They've got a father or a mother who's a gambler. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. So it's a different, it's it's a different, different mix. So even I didn't he, want that. Even though he spent a lot of time with you. Well, he spent a lot of time with me, but really? what were we doing? I'm working on the farm. You know, I'm the, la I'm the unpaid labor you know, to help uh, him and help him okay, and do I things. See, you know? see, so see, it's, a, it's a bit of a different thing. Right? I see. And plus, I wasn't mechanical. I wasn't, I wasn't, he's gifted in that sense. You know? I was not. So you can I help him with that. Anyway, I wasn't yeah. interested particularly. You know? um, I, I had my own path, you know. My okay. Path. So, what did, did your mother ever do anything? Did she work? No, no. My mother never worked. Never worked. So she just took care of the house. She worked before she got married, but yeah, she took care of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did she have many siblings? Uh, yeah, she had uh, an older brother and a twin brother. Okay. Yeah, and the interesting thing, the thing, the twin brothers, how it worked, right? The twin brother got educated. He was sent off to Rockhampton uh, Grammar School, which is a private school. 
and they scrimped and saved to send him there and then he joined the bank safe solid bank job you know and he worked in the bank his whole career you know very solid very safe so my elder my uncle her elder brother he he left home young to support the family he had to get work so he worked send money back to the family because my when my mother was eight her father died the father had been uh, English the mother and father are English which in Australia at that time is not a plus and, yeah, not of a course, plus. They were not happy not a plus. English. Being English in a small country town, right, with an accent, and plus my grandfather was well educated. He was came from a wealthy family. He was educated. I but, mean, but still English. English, but well educated. Okay. So he could speak a number of languages, you know. But he had a health condition, and the doctor said you should go to a warmer climate. Uh, it'll be good for your heart. So for whatever reason, he wound up in the Philippines. I don't know why the Philippines is working in Manila for a number of years and then he came down to Australia to Brisbane and that's where he met my grandmother. My grandmother had been a, a nurse in World War One and so she's nursing all the wounded troops coming back from the front, English troops, American troops, Canadian troops, Australian troops and she noticed the Australian troops even though they're wounded just like everyone else they're bright, they're happy, you know, they had a different energy about them and they're telling oh the streets are paved with gold and it's fantastic and you know blah blah so against her family's wishes which is unbelievable in Victorian England this is still Victorian England basically she came by herself down to Australia and she was cut off from the family from that point on cut off just parents never contacted her again you didn't do what we said you're out she's again a very independent woman so then she met my grandfather and then unluckily for her they went into the bush because he got a job running a property out in the bush. And then that's how my mother wound up being born in Iceford. Very, uh, very tough. Where's your father's family from? Brisbane. Brisbane. My father, he's like a fifth generation. And his father, in fact, all, all six are generations they, of my family, yeah, originally, were entrepreneurs. My original family, uh, actually very ironic, there's a place near Bristol where my son goes to uni called Henbury, which is probably now a suburb of Bristol. And they were based there. And the reason I know that is because when they came by ship round to Tasmania, uh, they were in this uh, 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 valley, uh, were in this valley, and they built a stone house, and they called it Henbury, after where they came from. So they were a farming family. In those days in Australia, uh, if you had capital, they weren't, they weren't convicts, they were free settlers. If you had mm -hmm. capital, mm -hmm. in relation to the amount of capital you had, the government would give you land because they needed you. They couldn't develop it. They needed you to cut down the trees, create the farming land, create industry, you know, and which is what they did. So the first generation did that, second generation did that. And my great-great-grandfather, he went chasing gold in the Victorian gold rush, like you know, the California gold rush. He went chasing gold in Victoria. And then somehow he wound up in Queensland. And that part of my family's been in Queensland ever since. And so he was, uh, you, had, you had a thing called, um, I think it was Wells Fargo with the carriage and the horses. They had a thing in Australia called Cobb Co, which was the uh, copy of Wells Fargo. Oh, and they had special, they had special uh, hinge technology, which is spring technology, which was developed in the States because of the, the roads, right? There's not no paved roads. And so they brought that technology to Australia and Cobb Co was the mail and delivery mechanism. And he ran that. And then he also had a job as a... Uh, a land and, and stockbroker, uh, you know, buying and selling property land for people as a broker. 
and then he bought his own properties. Um, eventually, he moved down to Brisbane, had a agricultural uh, listed company he, with some partners, started a listed company on land development, that type of thing, produce, that type of thing. And then my, his son, my grandfather, was a butcher, so he had the contacts in the in the in the bush and buy the the cattle, or the sheep, or whatever directly, and then have them in his butcher shop, and then. He got wiped out actually in the uh, depression in the 30s. He, uh, the, the business continued, but it just was very tough, very tough, you know. And you know, seven kids, <laughs> so it wasn't easy. And then- uh, Your father was number one. My father was uh, number, he was the second eldest boy. Uh -huh. So my uncle Colin was the young eldest, and this is interesting too, Colin was the eldest, then you had four girls, four. and my father was about number four. Yeah, four, four or five, I can't remember, five, maybe five, maybe, he's maybe number five, and then he had a younger sister and then a younger brother, Uncle okay. Mick, Uncle, and then my father, uh, well, my uncle, uh, he was sent to university, only one in the family to go the, to university. The, the first one. Yeah, first one, he went to Queensland Agricultural College, okay. and he became a, uh, a specialist in the sugar cane industry, which is in Queensland a big industry, and he's a big wheel, or was a big wheel, he's passed away now. There's a big wheel in the sugar industry and the uh, science research lab side. He was not a scientist per se himself, but he was running the research labs, uh, organizing the scientists in the sugar industry. Interesting thing, when he passed away, I wasn't actually there, I was here, I couldn't go for the funeral, but my auntie um, sent me the, the notes on the uh, background of him mm -hmm. from the funeral notice, you know, and, uh, at the actual funeral itself, and uh, I had no idea. My wife's Japanese, you know. He never said anything, but he was in Papua New Guinea during the war, fighting the Japanese Imperial Army in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, you know, which is just brutal, absolutely brutal. And so, but he never, yeah, World War II, he never ever mentioned anything about that. He knew I was living in Japan, he had a Japanese wife, met my wife, nothing. Very, you know, just had moved on, you know. I was so shocked, I went, oh my God, we'll call him in Papua New Guinea, fighting the Japanese. How old was he when he passed, do you know? Ah, Colin, he was in the uh, 80s, really I think, 80s. Oh, he made it, okay, so Yeah, I think well. 80s, he had a pretty, uh, pretty healthy lifestyle. He was always slim, you know, very slim. Actually... Was your father slim too? Yeah, oh yeah, my father, well... So it just... Uh, he, he, he was until he had an accident, he... Um, he, he uh, forget how he had this, he, he cut his foot quite badly in his hos in hospital for a little while and he came out and still drinking, still eating, and he put on a bit of a bit of weight. Not not massive, not massive, put on a bit of weight. But uh, you know, I'm I'm today I'm eighty three kilograms. So when I was competing in karate I was in the seventy five to eighty division. I'm in uh, I'm one I'm one eighty one point five. Almost exactly the same. Almost the same height. So I'm 181.5, although I'm shrinking, I think. But it's I was so in that 75 to 80 division, so I'm three kilos heavier than when I'm competing, which is not bad. What style? Shotokai? Shitoru. 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 But I was competing in okay. all style. It wasn't, you know, so, well, I did compete in singular style, but we were doing, well, in Australia, we were doing state championship, national championship, you know, doing the work. So that's everyone. Everyone had to go. When I started, there were no weight divisions. So, right. as a seventeen-year-old, <laughs> I'm competing against men. You know, I'm that's competing right. against heavyweights that's too. Right. You know, that's like, right. Like, and you knew it too. You oh, found yeah. that out real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this, Greg. Once you graduated from high school, did you go straight to college? No, you... no. I went straight into selling uh, encyclopedias door to door. 
I said, why is our, it's almost parallel. But only I did that while I was in the service because I was drafted. Vietnam was your time too. I missed the, I missed the draft by about six months. I missed, listen, I was number six on the lottery. <laughs> and the lower your number, the more chance you had of going in. And I'm from a big city. Went straight in. And then, no, when I, when I got my notice, I enlisted into the Air Force because I didn't want to go to Nam. And that's what stopped me from going to Vietnam. Yeah, well, I was, I was, I was turning 18. And at that time, uh, it was a lottery system based on your birth number, birth okay, date yeah, number. Birth, birth, birth. If your number came up, you're off. I knew. I knew. I'm going. I knew right. for sure. If I'm in that draft, I'll be drafted. I'll be in Vietnam for sure. I knew it. And then... But is the luck would have it. They don't have anything like that with you, the only child in the family? Oh, nothing. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Didn't matter. Really? No, no difference. So, uh, pure luck. Gough Whitlam, who is a leader of the Labour Party, which is an opposition to the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, not Liberal Democratic Party, Liberal Party, won the election in 72. And he did two things in particular which changed my life. One was he said, right, we're out of Vietnam. And they stopped the draft immediately. So I never got in the draft. And the second thing he said was education university is free. So I had no chance when you grow up in a poor family, your father's a big gambler, you got no chance, no money. So I went straight into 16, imagine a 16. Uh, you go and memorize the whole 25 minute pitch. You have to memorize it. Until you can memorize the whole thing, you're not allowed out to see anybody. So, in this company that I was working for, oh, Britannica, okay, okay. I, you know, right, go in every day right. and okay. have to memorize the whole thing. And you know, then you'd, you'd, they'd, you'd practice and role play. And then when they were satisfied, you could do it, out you go. They drop you in a, a low socioeconomic suburb uh, at 6 p.m. 6 p.m., they drop you, pick you up at 10. So, off you went. And uh, door to door, right. you know, so I played a bit of Britannica, brutal, absolutely brutal <laughs> at 16. And I, I thought, Jesus, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless of this. I can't sell. I just cannot sell. I'm no good. So after, I don't know how many weeks that I did that, I quit. Oh, so you hadn't sold anything in the week? Oh, I sold, I sold, I sold one lot and then they, they cancelled it after I sold. Okay. So <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I made a sale and then it would cancel. I go, this is hopeless. So I'm not making any money here, you know. It was terrible. And then I got a job uh, in a, uh, a garage pumping gas. I was in a gas stand pumping okay, gas. Yeah. Then I got a promotion. I was in this big, um, what do you call it, like a transport centre where all the big big uh, semi-trailer trucks had come in, okay. diesel, and I'd be pumping gas into those things. And then, and then I got a job uh, as a, a clerk. I was a very low-level clerk in a government, uh, state government insurance office which I did that my first day, first day, I almost quit. They had this big long wooden box. You're know, 17 now? Uh, yeah, 17. Okay, big long wooden box of uh, workers' compensation checks. When you got injured, you'd get sent a check of a certain amount of money to compensate you for the time you couldn't work. But these would come back, they'd be paid and come back. And I get this big long box <laughs> checks. Sort these into numerical order. <laughs> I'm doing this all day. Kill me now, you know, like I gotta quit. But there were a bunch of young guys my age there, you know, and I sort of fell in with them. And, you know, I'm, I'm sporty, they're sporty. I mean, I, you know, Australia's interesting. I played all codes of, I didn't have your code of football, but we had, I played soccer at what you'd call elementary school, primary right. school. I played rugby league at uh, high school. I played Australian rules football at high school. I was volleyball, swimming in the team. I was playing basketball in the team. 
uh, everything, you know, running. Was Did you have running. anything favorite? Oh, basketball, have? by far. You love basketball. Oh, yeah, I loved it. We play before school. We play on the breaks, we play lunchtime, we play after school, <laughs> every day. Did you have any position you liked the best? Uh, I wasn't tall enough to be uh, in the centre or, uh, you know, I was probably more of a guard. Okay. Uh, I was pretty quick, but I wasn't very tall. You know, I was a little bit taller than most people, but I wasn't like, the centre was huge. You know? mm. Our school was started that year that I went there, so it was a, a very, um, very unique. It was like the UN. You had kids from every country in the world who were migrants going to that school. You know, I was saying before, you got Poles, you got Italians, you got Ukrainians, you got everybody, Finns, you got everyone there. And it was the first year that school started. And despite that, just five years, by the time we got to year five, which is 9, 10, 11, you call it middle school, 11, 12, we call that high school, senior high school, we got to the finals of the Brisbane All High School Basketball Championship. Unbelievable. We got to the finals in five years. You had a great years. coach. You had a great coach. Though. We had a good coach. You know, we had a good awesome. coach. He was the uh, Baptist minister, who was also a basketball guy. He had, and he had a really hot-looking daughter too. He had a really <laughs> hot-looking daughter. She was so hot-looking, that daughter. <laughs> anyway, so his son was in the team, and he he started coaching us. And from that moment, things changed. He was good. And uh, anyway, the daughter's way too tall for me. But um, anyway, so that was good. And then uh, you know, love sports and. Uh, fell in with these guys and that was good and then I'd started I started karate training uh, when I yeah, left what school. What made you decide to do karate? Uh, when I, you started this when I was in high school, when I was, this is a sort of basketball related story, there was a guy, his family, there were three boys, they came from the Northern Territory which is like the very deep north, you know, there's like real real cowboy territory, I don't know, maybe I don't know, I don't know is West Texas like really okay, redneck yeah, yeah, area, okay. like that, like, okay, like that, right, they came down. And these are, he was like 18, different schooling systems. So I'm 16 in high school, he's 18. <laughs> you can imagine, right? Right, right. big difference, right? He'd been doing boxing up there, right? He's quite more polished boxers because it's pretty rough, rough and tough cow country out there. Right? Okay. So um, we, uh, he just sort of arrived, went playing basketball one day and uh, he was playing against me and I sort of faked left and went right around him and scored. He didn't like that. So he called me out and he wanted to fight with me. Except Just, I, I okay. didn't, I didn't know how to fight, you know. And I knew, I knew enough that you don't know how to fight this guy. Don't even go there, you know. Right, right. It was humiliating. It was humiliating because there was a situation, a physical situation. I didn't have any prep for that. I didn't know anything, and I thought, well, this is no good. This is no good. I don't want to have this ever happen again in my life. So at that time, you had judo. It didn't really grab me. Wrestling, no, nah, it didn't grab me. Boxing, no, nah, you get hit too much in boxing, can't be that smart doing boxing. And then James Bond movie, right? <laughs> one one <laughs> shooto strike and down, that's what I want to learn. That's the one. And at that time, you couldn't learn karate because you couldn't find a dojo because mm. they were too small and too poor to advertise. So, you, and then you have to know somebody and I'd go to the library and I'd get out the book by, you know, Kanazawa Sensei from Shotokan and got to the backyard and I could not wake heads or tails, but could not make sense of it, right? And then finally there was an ad when I started work at the insurance company in the YMCA had this big ad for every possible hobby you could imagine, a big page full of these. And one course, 10 week course on karate. I'll try that. Wasn't that expensive? I thought, oh, this, I'll try it. 10 weeks, I'll try it. So I, I turn up. And I was there at, at uh, 
7 because it was uh, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, 8.30, 7 to 8.30. But at 5.30 to 7, there was another class training. So when I arrive, we're all sort of sitting outside, you know, t-shirt and shorts, and they're inside. You can hear this ki, you're always yelling and looking through the, the door, you know, what's going on, all these people in pyjamas leaping around. What the hell's going on? And anyway, so I know exactly what we did because I taught that class myself many times. So I know what we did. And at the end of it, we're sitting on the wooden floor, which is hard on your knees, right? Sitting on, in, in meditation, in your Cesar, that seated position. And we're meditating and I thought, summer, it's like this is January in Brisbane, which is like hot, really humid, really hot, sweat pouring out of my face. But I remember I'm sitting there, I've got sweat running out of my face, my knees are killing me. My toes coming because your feet folded behind you. This is for me. I knew it straight away. You were I was hooked. How old were you? How old were you? Seventeen. 17. I was just turned seventeen. I was hooked. And from that moment on, that was it. And so I'm mean, now what? This is fifty-first year this year, training for fifty-one years. Wow. Yeah. And what so you, what we used to do. What, what did you, your son done? Your son? Oh, good. I got to, Gouda, I got Gouda. Gouda now. Gouda. Gouda. Yeah. Oh, and so, congratulations. Um, we would train, uh, when I got through the beginning class, we trained 5.30 to 7 in that dojo. And then the Hombu dojo was in a very um, distant part of the CBD, the Central Business District. Can't believe it. So I'm wearing my dogi, my running, my shoes, and I'm running shoes, and I'm running through the city in my dogi, 7 o'clock at night, from one dojo to the other dojo, do another hour and a half of training. So I'm double training, double training. I did, this for, uh, did that for ever. And then in 19 months, I went from white belt to black belt, which was unheard of. 19 months. Unheard of, unheard of. You, you unheard of. breathe, eat, that's oh, yeah. all you did. Unheard of, unheard of. And we had a Japanese teacher, uh, Kusano. What did your says, parents think about this? Because you were coming home, that's uh, all you did. Oh, they did didn't. you have a makiwara at home too? No, no, no. We didn't use makiwara in those days. At that time. Oh, they did. At that yeah, time. At that time. Yeah. That came later. That came later. But um, that's when Iba Sensei came to Australia. But mm-hmm. we uh, we had Kusano Sensei came out from Japan. We had a Gashku. So you were doing kata, kata. I did my training uh, grading. We have kumite, kata, mm-hmm. basics, mm-hmm. the whole works. Mm-hmm. And I got my shoda at uh, the age of uh, uh, the age of 18. Did you ever, by any chance, bump into the guy in the basketball court again? No, I didn't. But uh, I tell you an interesting story. Um, it's interesting how your mind works. I was, uh, it was a hot day in Brisbane. It was during the daytime. And I went into a pub, not to get a beer, I went into a pub to get uh, like a, uh, an orange juice or, or something like that, some, something cold, you know. And I walked in, I'm having this drink. Something wrong here. I could sense it. Something wrong here. Now your age again now at this time is how old are you now? Oh, I'm probably about 19, 20. I 19, think. okay. So you're I could sense something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I just walked out. My sense told me there's going to be trouble here. I didn't know what the trouble would be. I didn't know you who would be the trouble. You could tell. But I walked out. And it's sort of, that sense has kept me out of trouble because I don't, I don't want to get into trouble. That's right. And, have to and then have to get out because the, one of two things will happen if they if something happens to me I get hurt or if I hit them they get and they go down and they hit the back of their head on anything hard and they die or injured I'm in jail for the rest you know? of your life right. so it just it gives you that sense it's interesting 
you remember, I guess given your, how your mind works, right? Uh, Will Smith hits Chris Rock. Now, when you saw that, you saw, the, you saw him walk up and hit him, right? This is what I saw. Ah, Will Smith is off balance. His body talk is such that all Chris Rock has to do is push that hard on his right shoulder at a 90 degree angle and Will Smith is going to go down mm -hmm. <laughs> in his tux mm -hmm. with just that much effort. See, that's my brain is not looking at the violence if he smacked him. I'm looking at, oh, right. he's oh, off balance. Right. He's right. over-talked. Right. So all, all Chris Rock's got to go is go tap. <laughs> that's interesting. But poor old Chris Rock wasn't trained, obviously. But not just that. He was not, there was a sucker punch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. King hit, we call that a king hit, right? the last thing he expected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's something, I took martial arts when I was in um, Puerto Rico, um, and there was just a few of us. And i never forget when the guy that was training us, he was like a master sergeant, short guy, and they tend to have sometimes complexes, and he was very strong. He made me the instructor while he was gone, and I was all of 19, hmm. wanted to prove myself, so I was very brutal to everyone while he was gone, jumping on their stomachs. I did everything you shouldn't yeah, do. Yeah, we should do that too. I did all this <laughs> stuff. Anyway, he heard about this, so when he came back two weeks later, he said, Lance, I heard that you're um, kind of hard on everybody. I said, yes. He said, well, I have a new move for you. And he said, put me in the chokehold. And he said, you have your cup on? I said, yes. And he said, so I knew I was, he was going to go for the groin, but he said, put me in the chokehold. What so style was this? Shotokan. Shotokan, okay. So I turned sideways and I put him in a chokehold. He said, you got me? And I said, yes. And he goes like this. He goes, and spat in my face. And as soon as he did, I went like this. And next thing. Then he hit me in my throat, hit me in my groin, and put me in the ground. Uh -huh. And he said, Lance, well, as I lied down there, and I mean, he hit me hard, so hard. I mean, I just thought, why did he do this? I mean, he didn't hold me. He hit me hard enough to, to swell up my throat. And he hit me in my groin. The cup didn't matter. Yeah, I know. I know. And he said, um, no matter how good you get, yeah. you'll never be surprised. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I quit. Yeah, really? That was it? I was done. All right, okay. I was, I was, I was the best there they yeah, had. Yeah. But I finished. I didn't do anything. So then what he said to me after that, he saw me about a month or two months later, and he made me come, because I was avoiding him. Cause I, <laughs> He, what he did to me was not necessary. No. So he came to me and he said, Lance, he said, I know you've been avoiding me. The beast was not that big. Right. And I saw him several times, but I made sure I went the other way. He said, I did that to you because of the story. I was you. I went to a bar, a local bar, became the bouncer. I broke a guy's arm and his leg, and it didn't have to be done. Right. Fast forward, about a year later, I'm in a parking space out in this area, and someone starts shooting. So I wonder where, and I realized they were shooting at me. Oh. And then took off. The guy took off, didn't hit him, but he hit the cars beside him. And he didn't see who it was, but he knows he in his knows. heart it was that guy. That guy. And he said, you were headed to that. Yeah, that could have been you. He said, if you ever, ever, ever mm. find yourself having to use this, mm. you should leave that person one of two ways, mm. in convulsions or completely still. Because we were training in very traditional karate, so it's all about control. That's why, you know, someone like Will Smith, no control. No. That's just not allowed, you know. Like my wife, you know, oh, he was defending his wife. Would you do that for me? I said, no. 
if someone was, was abusing, I, I'd, I'd tell them to but stop. But there was but, no but, threat. There was yeah, no exactly. I'm not going to go and hit somebody, out of, like, especially a king hit like that, right? Like, no, of course I'm not going to do that. We're taught to be controlled. That's no control. I think when you train the martial arts, you're very, you're very tuned up to your environment of people, you know, because, you know, when I'm with when I'm around people, without thinking about it, I'm scanning the room for trouble. Without even thinking about it, I'm just automatically scanning the room. Who's built? Who's not built? Who's likely to be trouble? You know, without, it's just psychologically, in the back of my mind, it's going on all the time. So I guess that training sort of sticks with you. But I love the training. I mean, training was so hard. You're, you're talking, we're starting at 5.30 in the afternoon in summer in Queensland. Jesus, you can't like you're training in a, in a pool, a literal pool of sweat is so hot, your belt soaked, your doggies soaked, everything soaked. It was unbelievable. And you loved, but loved it. Minute of I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I, mean, I you loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I competed right through. I and then I became did a Did you have your son take up martial arts? I did, I did. And, and he, he trained been... he trained here at Tack with what about uh, your with Goshi Sensei. No, yes. No, she didn't do martial arts. Uh, but you know, again he didn't have what did arm. he do he dropped out to do basketball you know i wanted him to do he was a junior and he got his black belt and then he said dad oh, you know yeah, he got his black belt he said dad you know i'm doing karate because of you i really want to do basketball what can i say How i did not do karate he did he trained for about three four years Three, how, four years. how old was he when he was doing that? Oh, he started. He's very young. He's about yeah, man, I'm sure you put him in as soon as he started walking. About I think 10 or something. No, he's about 10. He's about 10. No, I didn't start him. I didn't start him too early. I, I okay, okay. need a little bit of maturity, right? And, uh, but, you know, I, and I, he was actually training in two dojos. He's training in the one here in Tak, and then in Shiraganadei, where I, I, I live. There was at the Shogako, there was another dojo. Same Gojuru, same group, same uh, Yamaguchi group. And uh, there was another different teacher there. And he'd go there on Friday night. So it'd be Wednesdays here and Friday there. And I'd go. I'd go. I'd go and watch him. I know you were. I'd sit there, freezing cold in the winter. I'd sit there and watch the whole class, you know, watch there and uh, watch his training here. You know, I, you know. And then he said, I want basketball. So Isn't that Mary's the basketball team. But he did well. He got into the, they were the, uh, even when they were in uh, junior high school, they got into the varsity team. And then when he was in senior high school, continued in the varsity. He was that good to be in the varsity. Is he the same rate as you? Yeah. And then he, he stopped basketball. In oh, he's year, not taller than you. In year, he's, no, it's his, mother, his mother's fault. I blame her. Slightly shorter than me. He's yeah, about 170, yeah. 175 or something. Same with my son. Like that, right? That's his mother's fault. Um, and so, uh, but he stopped. When he got to, because he's doing the, um, uh, the uh, International Baccalaureate. So in year... Year 11, and halfway through year 11, he stopped basketball just to concentrate on study for the IB. He just full on for the IB, you know, which must have been hard for him because he loved the basketball. He really enjoyed it. He enjoyed his mates and he enjoyed the game. He, he did this. He decided to do He this. wanted to do basketball, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm talking about the IB. He oh, the IB. The IB, the school is the IB, and I, we wanted him to do the IB. He didn't okay. have a choice about the IB. It's oh, like, you never chose the IB, buddy. You're done the IB. <laughs> you want to get anywhere, you do the IB, you know. So, so that was decided. That, that wasn't a discussion at all. And a similar, a similar discussion to someone else in your show who maybe was uh, uh, Bevan, maybe it was Bevan. Bevan yeah, yeah. He sent Neil, his, his daughter, daughter to UK, right? And the same, same thing he said. I said, son, you're not going to America for university. Yeah. America's out. Just out. Forget about it. You're not going to America. So it's going to be either Australia or the UK, not even Canada. And I said, Australia's a bit too small. You want to do law, 
they don't have that many big law firms down there. I think if you want to do law, you should go to the UK. Big law firms there, and you should study there. And so we did a big, big tour one year, a big tour of UK. It was, you know, tens of, I don't know, it was probably a whole week just driving around the UK, visiting unis, and then he picked one in Bristol, so he went there. But uh, similar, very similar idea. How'd you get to Japan, the school there? Well, when I was doing the, when I was doing the uh, karate, I got very frustrated with my Japanese teachers, uh, Sensei Iba, who came out in 74, because Lance, if I thought it was up, he thought it was down. If I thought it was black, he thought it was white. You know, I was like, what's going on here, you know? Everything was different. My first real experience of the culture difference. And I thought to myself, you know, if ever I'm going to understand, master this karate, I've got to go to Japan and understand how the Japanese think because I cannot work this guy out. And at that time, I could not separate either the man and the art of karate. They were one thing to me. I couldn't see which was which because his word was law and everything he said was like God was speaking. And you had to follow everything that God said, you know. And so <clears throat> I got finally, I worked on all the 3K jobs, you know, Kitsui, Kitanei, uh, kick in jobs for a number of years uh, after school to get enough money to go to uni. Went to uni, I was 21. I did modern Asian studies at Griffith University and they had no, they just, that university just started. And I'd had that experience in my high school of just starting. So I knew what that experience was like. I was always the senior and I thought this is a pretty good idea, I'll do this again. I want to do that faculty, I want to do that particular thing. And so as it turned out, I studied Chinese in the first year and uh, then in the second year, I could have started Japanese, but I already started year of Chinese. I didn't want to quit, so I, I went through right through Chinese, and then uh, plus you know politics and economics, etc. Society for Japan, China, and Indonesia were three main countries to focus on. Then at graduation point, I did my honours year, which is the next year, three years plus an extra honours year, because I want to be an academic, I want to be like my my professors, and then uh, I got a scholarship, uh, the Monbusho scholarship, to come to Japan for two years as a graduate. And I thought, well, here's my ticket to go and study karate <laughs> and, and do the other thing and learn Japanese. So it all sort of came together in the end. And I don't know why I thought when I started studying Chinese, well, one day I'll learn Japanese. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. So I had the Chinese, I had the Japanese. And so I did, um, I was doing a study of Sino-Japanese relations and a master's degree on that. And then my PhD was also on that. So I was combining Japanese source language, Chinese source languages, the resources for my, my doctorate. So it also worked out in the end. And I was, teaching English and every weekend I'd get on the bullet train, I'd go down to Himeji where our headquarters was, I'd get there on Saturday afternoon, train Saturday night, get back on the bullet train Sunday morning, come back and keep studying, you know. It was like that. I did that for six years. did that for six years. I did um, two years uh, language study, two years master's degree, went back home for a year and a half, started the set up a PhD, came back for a year and a half on field work, so about six six years altogether. Roughly it's very six. interesting, based upon the way that you were raised, which wasn't so untraditional, particularly in Australia at that time, your, your laser focus mm. all the way through. I mean, yeah. was your, well, I guess maybe... maybe karate. Was, but the not karate. just then, no, 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 don't forget your father, you said he was a gambler, and that's what he was. He was, yeah. That was a laser focus. And that focus was the road not to take. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? But that he was, was focused yeah. on something yeah. he stayed on. Was your mother like that in any way? My mother was quite strict with me. Quite strict. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, she'd grown up with a mother who was from Victorian England. So that's, yes. So I think that sort of filtered down to me. She was very strict with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't... You, you think about this, right? Think about this. 
When I was a teenager, I was not allowed to wear jeans into town. If I was going into Brisbane city itself, city centre, because we're in a suburb, I was not allowed to wear jeans. You had to wear slacks. Yeah. You probably, yeah. Yeah, I could not wear jeans. That was not allowed. Couldn't have long hair. Was not allowed. So she kept you trimmed? Well, by my parents, like, you know, you had short hair all the whole time. It was only when I left home, I left home at 18, so I could do what I liked, you know, so wear jeans. If I want to go to town, I could have my hair a bit longer. And so when you finished, when you came here, so you come here to Japan. That was 79, 1st of April, 1979. But you did college in Australia first. I did, yeah, I did uh, four, years. four years. I did there. three so years, did, did a uh, Bachelor of Arts degree, then an extra year of Bachelor of Arts honours degree. Mm -hmm. And then I came here, did the two years of language study, then I did a master's degree here. Mm -hmm. Went back, started the PhD, came back for the well, field you went, work. You went back, started your PhD. Well, you've got to set up your PhD. You've got to do your research on what's your topic and resources and, you know, how you're going to structure it and what's okay. the topic going to be. So I did that, set that, took a year and a half to set that up. Then I came back to Japan on field work for a year and a half, did the interviews, collecting materials, doing translation. Then I went back and spent five years writing it up. What was, your, what was it on? It was on a study of Japanese decision-making about economic cooperation in Chinese development. Because, this is the early 80s we're talking, right? And at that time, Japan was uh, relying on Australia for a lot of resources, right? But China had a lot of resources too. And like Australia, the resources are in sort of the middle of the country. And what the Japanese had done with Australia was they'd funded the development of the extraction of the resources through railways, port, power development to get it out. And they were doing the same thing with China through aid. And I was studying how they made those decisions about which particular areas they would develop and what particular things they put the money into, thinking that if ever China became a competitor for Australia, I would be someone who knows what's going on. And that might be useful to people is what I thought. But what I didn't realise was, around about that time, I think it was about 83, Deng Xiaoping did his southern tour, so-called southern tour, where he said it doesn't matter if the um, cat is black or white, as long as it catches the mice, which is an absolutely radical statement. That cat had to be red, communist red, in China at that time. But he said, no, we could be pragmatic. We don't care if it's a red cat, black cat, white cat, can it be pragmatic? That was a big turning point. And so what's ironically, what happened over those years, you know, was that we became a major supplier to China, and we still are a major supplier of China of those resources too, because their development is so vast, they couldn't supply their own uh, stuff and their quality, their coal's not that good either. You know? so, but you didn't know that back in the early 80s, right? And then I finished my PhD um, in 89, and then I had to, do, had to get it, uh, go through the, uh, the challenging stage of having it, uh, having it looked at, and then I had to do some rewriting, which <laughs> really irked the hell out of me. So I finally got it awarded in, finished at 89, got it awarded in 1990, finished there. But uh, I'd, I'd started my own company uh, before the end, um, and then I got headhunted into a company now called Jones Lang LaSalle. It was called Jones Lang Rutan in those days. I joined them in Brisbane to run the Japan desk. I didn't know anything about real estate, but um, I'd started my own company, but I realised I'd been a student in Japan. I didn't really know much about business. And uh, I was doing okay, but it wasn't brilliant. But I realized uh, it's a lot I don't know. And then this is like my MBA, to get an opportunity to go and learn about business from you know, one of the most ruthless industries on the planet, real estate. You know, very, very cut and dry. 
And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I had a great, great boss and a great group of people, and I really, really did that. And then about, uh, that was what, that was 89 I joined. About 91, the bubble had burst in, in like, you know, late, late 80s, early 90s in Japan, and the foreign overseas investment, foreign direct investment <laughs> faucet got turned off. So there wasn't any more money coming out of Japan. So uh, I lost my job because there just wasn't, you know, wasn't the point of having a Japan expert with no Japan business. So, and I'd seen an ad in the paper uh, for a job with Austrade. You don't really have an Austrade in America. You have a, a, a similar organization, but it's not the same. It's called the Australian Trade Promotion Organization. It's government, but it was very commercial. It had its own board. Uh, it ran like a private company. They recruited people like me out of the private sector. And so uh, I happen to know the guy who was heading it, Craig Dodds, passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. And I'd missed the cutoff date. And I rang him up in Tokyo, say, hey, Greg, listen, uh, I see the ad, I've missed the date. Can I still apply? He said, yeah, go ahead, apply. So I applied, and I got, I got the job. So I had a choice. I had, um, I, I thought they were opening one office. Turns out they were opening four. It was going to be Fukuoka, Nagoya, Sendai, Sapporo. And he said, well, there's four offices. I said, well, forget Sapporo. I'm not going there. Too cold. I've never even been to Sendai, so I'm not going there either. I'll go to Fukuoka or Nagoya because I've been to those two places. And actually, I want to go to Fukuoka because I'm on the beach. <laughs> go surfing. <laughs> In fact, I got Nagoya. And uh, that was hard. Started from zero. Started the office from zero. Hard. You know. And built it up to one. Oh, I, I got promoted and I went, to, I went from basically we had about four people in Nagoya when I left and I went to Osaka, which had about 25 people at that time. But yeah, Nagoya is very interesting. In Nagoya, the answer is always no. <laughs> in business, the answer is always no. Really hard. And they don't like anybody. In particular, if you're from Tokyo, like forget <laughs> if you're a foreigner, you're Japanese from Tokyo, they don't like you. You're a foreigner, don't like you either. And the answer is always no. People from Osaka, yeah, we sort of don't like you either, but we'll sort of put up with you, you know, very interesting. A bit like Brisbane, my hometown, because the people who work in Brisbane probably graduated from schools in Brisbane, they work in Brisbane, they don't leave. The climate is so good, you don't want to leave. Why would you go anywhere? Stay there. Well, my whole family, everyone's, no one left, they're all there basically. So anyway, similar thing. And that was hard, man, that was hard. This is, you know, like you do a deal, you think you've done a deal. The goods arrive in the airport or they arrive in the seaport, then they renegotiate the price. This is yes, Nagoya. That's right. This is Nagoya. It's tough. That was hard. And then uh, I built that up and did quite well. And then that was a contract ended. And then there was another contract going to, uh, as it turned out timing-wise, to run Osaka. And I applied, I, I, I bid for the uh, Osaka job, I had to go through the interview process, it was open, anyone, external, internal, everyone can, uh, anyone can bid for the job. Went through the interview process, got the job, started running Osaka, did that for four years, moved to Kobe um, after the earthquake. And then I got married in Kobe. My Japanese wife was from Nagoya. I met her there, but then... So you were there for quite a while to get yeah, married. Yeah, I was there. I was a four years. year was that that you got married? Uh, that, was, uh, that was 98... 98... Yeah, 98. 98. Yeah, you waited for a while. Yeah, well, I was, uh, I was Nagoya. 92 to 96, then I was working in Osaka, 96 to 2001. You've only been married once? Twice, twice. Okay, so My daughter's see. from a first marriage. Oh, okay, okay, so your first marriage was when? Oh, that was, I got married young. I was 21 when I got married, when I but started university. Japanese? Uh, no, Australian. 
Oh, sweet. Okay, so yeah. you. Oh, okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah. And your son is from your second marriage. Wife. Second marriage. Uh, yes, second yes. Okay. My daughter's from the first marriage. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Actually, I was talking to my first oh, wife th today. You did? Yeah, yeah. I missed. I couldn't get her yesterday for Mother's Day, so I was going to call. She's in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, we're great friends. Oh, that's Still great. great friends. That's good. Yeah. Great friends. And you said your daughter just got married. She just got married, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. To someone Australian. Yeah, actually, well, his family are Italians. Well, his, well, his family. His mother's Italian, his father's Australian. And so I've not met him yet because okay. of COVID. I haven't been able to get down yeah, there. Right, right. I'm right, not right. Even, I'll get to meet him sometime, I guess. But um, so my, my uh, job in Osaka was great. I love about Osaka. Yes, no, very clear. And yes money, or no. We're talk about money first, too. Yeah, yes, no, very clear. You're interested? No one interested. I love that. Okay, we know where we stand here. Tokyo, it's a definite maybe. It's a definite maybe in Tokyo. Nagoya, it's no. Tokyo, different maybe. Osaka. You're right. Yes or no? Boom. I love that. And I loved Osaka. It was great. I great. And the food is good. The food is. Oh, food is fantastic. The people. I mean, this is an exaggeration, but the people in Osaka remind me of Latin culture. You know, they love having a good life and the food and the music and whatever. You know. And Osaka is very, very like that. And Tokyo is very sort of formal, a bit more, a bit, I'd say English, you know. They are very, very London, English, them, no conservative to me. Right. Um, Nagoya is very, very country, you know, very country town, um, insular. Sakoku Jidai has not far stopped there. It's still going. <laughs> and uh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved Kobe. I lived in Kobe. It was great. I had this, uh, I was a, well, in Nagoya, I was a consul and I was a trade commissioner. In Osaka, I was a consul general and I was a for senior Austria, trade for commissioner. Austria. Yeah. And that was a great job because it's, I represented my, my, my country in karate, which is a great honor. And what this year, was. What year did you do that? Oh, this is when I was doing karate, you know, when I was back in the years. But as a, as a, as a worker, you in Austrade, you're representing a country in business. Because what we would do is we'd find the buyer, we'd do the deal, we'd do the deal, and then all I had to do was set the price. We couldn't set the price and supply it, but we did everything. Oh, very, nice. I love that. It was great, very pleasurable. It was a great job. It was yeah, a lot of esprit de corps. You felt yeah. very good about your job, and then, and then I, I sort of ran out of out of runway there because it's like four years, four years. You can't last there forever. I just had to move, and then by chance the job came up to run Tokyo, and then I became. Uh, Koshi, minister in the embassy. So I was like the ambassador. Then the next rank down is Koshi, the ministers. I was the second rank down to the ambassador. First secretary. First secretary. Uh, no, no, first secretary is down the bottom of the pile. Oh, really? Yeah, no, you have, you have, uh, you, have you have minister, and then okay. you have below that. Um, so anyway, but I did enjoy that. Um, and then I ran out of runway there too because that was like, I had, I had would have had four years, and then I would have had to move. And my son had been born in 2001 in Kobe. He's a Kobeko. And so we moved up to Tokyo. And I thought to myself, you know what? I want him to become bilingual in Japanese. I think that'll be a huge advantage for him in life. I don't want to leave Japan. Because I had my pick. I'd done very well. We'd been number two in the world um, twice in Osaka. When I moved to Tokyo, we became number two in the world. Then we became number one in the world by the measurement system they had at that time on sales. And then uh, I was doing pretty well. And so, but I realized, well, another you know, couple of years this, I've got to move. So I wanted to stay. So I had to start thinking about leaving. And 
talk about chance. I happened to be giving a talk to the American Chamber and there happened to be one guy in the audience who worked for Shinsei Bank. And you know, doing Meishi Kokan, card exchange at the end, this guy came out, worked for a coffee with you, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, like, yeah, sure, you know, yeah, 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 yeah sure, right. But he actually rang me up a week later, we had coffee, blah, blah, blah. So I'd like you to meet my boss. Okay, meet your boss. So I met his boss. And then his boss started talking. I started to realize, oh, I'm being interviewed for a job here. It clicked, you know. I thought, mm-hmm. And so he said, look, you know, blah, 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 this is what we do, you know, what would you do? And so I put together a business plan for him. And I said, well, this is what I'd do. And they offered me a job for the Shinsei Bank. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about, this is retail banking, right? Retail banking. And I thought, well, you know what? Clients are retail banking clients. They don't know anything about banking either. So it can't be that complex. And I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be producing product. That's a very specialized job. That won't be my job. And my job's going to be something else. So I, I, I quit. I quit the embassy. I quit the uh, Australian Trade Commission. My boss was shocked. Uh, he was shocked. I gave him the resignation letter. I gave him two letters. I gave him my formal I quit letter. And I gave him I love you letter. You know, right, right, exactly. Yes. My heartfelt. Yes. You are my you. mentor. Right. Uh, you're my guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate right. you, uh, you know, right. from the heart. You know, And then here's the formal right. letter, right? Two letters. Right. And he knew, he knew. And so uh, then I, I joined the Shinsei Bank and uh, I loved it. And then they brought in Tamai and uh, that was the end of it. And so at that time, uh, uh, one of the big recruiting companies uh, contacted me and said, uh, we've got this job to run the National Australia Bank here in Japan. It's one of the big four banks in Australia, huge bank, 40,000 people, huge global bank. And uh, I said, oh, okay, it'd be pretty good. And it was retail, they had a retail operation. So I took that on and did that for about three years. And at the time of, of doing that, there was like two paths in the, in the fork of the road for me. We had, with some partners, we'd bid on the, we were bidding on the franchise for the Dale Carnegie franchise for Japan at that time. Who was? This is me and my other two, well, three partners at that time. Okay, it had nothing to do with the bank. Nothing to do with that. Okay, this is personal. This is, okay, this, this is, a, is your me, side. Me as, a, as an investor. Knowing that you weren't going to see the bank indefinitely. Right? Yeah, investing with some partners to buy this franchise, okay. this training franchise for uh, Japan. Right. But we didn't know if we are going to get the franchise or not. So we're sitting there. We've applied. We're sitting there. And this job came in from Corn Ferry about, okay, National Australia Bank. And then I had discussions with them. And then they made me an offer. And I hadn't heard about the franchise, and I took the bird in the hand. I said, okay, I'll take the, the bank job, but I will want to work in this business for myself later. Mm-hmm. And I did three years at the National Australia Bank, and then uh, they actually changed the business model in that three years. It got to a point where they wanted to branch out from just retail and go into a full, a full service bank with a whole raft of things, which I wasn't the person to run that, so I knew I, this is not going to work. So that's when I came out and I then took over Dale County. It was um, 2000 and, that was 2000 and, what was that now? I'm trying to think, 2000, I'm going to have to leave 2010. We're going to have to leave in a little bit. That's okay, 2010, 2010. So yeah, 2010, I've been running it for 12 years now. So 2010 I did that, so, and here I am. So now, 
every generation of my family have been an entrepreneur and my family got to, but it's interesting, you know, when I look back, when I look back, I was an entrepreneur in every business I worked in. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur, but I was an entrepreneur. I was constantly doing innovative things and all of those companies, I was an entrepreneur dying to become an entrepreneur without knowing it. But when I look back, I realize, yeah, I was doing this, I was doing this, I was doing this. Yeah, and now I'm finally, I finally made it as a, and I bought my partners out in January. I was going to ask you, yeah. yeah I bought this, them out in this, this January. Past, this yeah. past 26th January. of January is Australia Day, by chance. We signed the contracts Australia How many Day. partners did you have? At that stage, I had two left. One two and left. had departed the business earlier, I had two left. So I bought them out. Wow. So now I'm poor but free. And you're Dale Carnegie. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've been here since 1963. But in, in different stages. Who had, like, a guy called Mochizuki started in 1963 in Japan. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Mr. Yamamoto took it over. He passed away about a year, within a year. Mm -hmm. Then his wife, Mrs. Yamamoto, took it over with her son. And then we took it over from Mrs. Yamamoto oh, in 2007. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And she's a great lady. I have a good relationship with her. Yes. So, yeah, it's been great. It's been well, great. I put my son through it when I knew you were going to go through it. Mm. Yeah, well, actually, isn't that interesting? I was doing it the second time. He's my that's classmate. Right. Right, right, I know. He's so my I classmate. Had, that's right. <laughs> so I had Lance go through it. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. And then I got to come and see the last speech. And actually, uh, also, there's uh, a couple of people from TAC who are also my classmates, too. That's right, yeah, that's right. Isn't that from, from the TAC team who are doing it now. Yeah. Well, the way I wrap this up, Greg, is this I always ask people this one question mm. Would you consider a good life in Japan? Hmm. I think it depends on the stage of your life you're in. I think for me, when I look at someone who's an aging boomer, into the boomers, right? If you look at what's our life expectancy, uh, what's going to be important about convenience for someone in that boomer generation, big, big bubble coming through, wealthy bubble coming through, uh, what are the sort of things you're going to want to have in terms of the facilities, in terms of the technology, in terms of how medical, etc., etc., etc. I think Japan is probably the best place in the world to age. I think Tokyo is the best city in the world, bar none, and I've been to about all of the major cities in the world. It's clean, everything works, the people are polite, there's no guns, there's no major drug problem, there's no major crime problem. It's a, you know, it's got everything you'd want. And so for me, I think it's a, I, built a house here, you know, I'm not leaving. I'm a migrant in this country. I've never become Japanese because my wife's Japanese, I'm Australian. If ever we got to leave, if ever North Korea becomes a real problem, we got to leave, I've got a way for us to get out to go to Australia. So I don't want to become Japanese and close that off. In the same way that if we're somewhere and we got a problem and she's Japanese, she's got that Japanese capability of, of you know, we always wonder, you never know what's going to happen in the world. Who can imagine we'd be having a major war in Europe like we've got now with, uh, Ukraine and Russia and Slava Ukraine, by the way, Slava Ukraine. I hope you guys uh, win. So, you know, but you don't know. So I want to keep my Australian citizenship and, uh, and forever, if I can, if I can here, but uh, don't plan to go back. You know, so I think uh, Japan, it depends on the stage that you're in in your life. But for me, this is, I think, the best place. Now, I love Australia. I, I, it's God's own country down there, I mean, really. That's why I say my family, nobody leaves. Why would you leave? It's great. The Queensland. You know, we have a great saying, that's a great tagline for Queensland. Beautiful one day, perfect the next. <laughs> that's a great tagline. That is beautiful. And that's how good it is, right? So 
and I love going down there. I love being Australian. I love going down there. But you know, my family's here, and I say, and so I'm here now forever. Greg, I want to thank you so much for taking this time. My great pleasure, and thank you for having me. And uh, look forward to catching up with you and have you on my podcast. Oh, I, I can't wait. Yeah, let's I'm do that. All of you watching this podcast, make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all on loan, so keep reaching for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed. Mm -hmm.